Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, uh, William Nordhaus. He is the author of the just published The Spirit of Green, The Economics of Collisions and Contagions in a Crowded World, just out from Princeton University Press. Uh, Professor Nordhaus, thank you so much for for being on the show. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. So your, your book really is very timely, of course, given the uh, amount of discussion concerning climate change and the various proposals and the, the combination of kind of alarmism and extremism that is uh, common in the discussion of climate change. What I really appreciated in your book was the sort of calm, systematic approach from an economist's perspective of both analyzing this problem and coming up with a reasonable solution. And you basically make the argument, and this is my summary, and correct me if I'm wrong, that standard economics with a little bit of tweaking, maybe a little bit of endo, uh, elbow bending, can help fix climate change in the sense of helping come up with reasonable policies that are uh, applicable and relevant and work within a a standard economic framework. But, and it's a fairly big but, and I kind of like to start with that if it's possible, that pollution and therefore climate change is treated as an externality in the classical uh, economic framework, and it can be hard to deal with. I I wonder if you could start with uh, how you, you... uh, ended up within this framework of, of treating a pollution as an externality and what needs to be done to make it fit within existing classical economics? Uh, sure. Um, the main point of the book is to develop a, kind of a way of looking at our complex interactions, social economic uh, interactions, in a way that incorporates not just the markets, where we buy our bread and our shoes, we go on Amazon, we buy books or whatever, but also non-market activities whereas the book says we have bumps and collisions and contagions. So we have a well-developed framework going back to Adam Smith and uh, developed in the recent era of how to understand the market and how it works, but how to understand these non-market activities, these bumps and collisions, this is a more recent development. And this is a development of how to think about externalities, why they cause problems, what the solutions are. And so what the purpose of this book was to try to develop for these externalities, for these common goods, for these collective problems we have, a framework for thinking about those that in a way is parallel to the framework that we think about our markets. And that's the, that's the framework in which we can talk about things like climate change or even pandemics or even collisions or even um, congestion on the road about thinking of these kinds of activities. And, and the characteristic of those collisions is often that they're uneven in terms of a, a private good or a public good, and that that is a challenge was identified in economics uh, almost a century ago. Arthur Pigou, I want to make sure I don't mispronounce his last name. Uh, is it Pigou? Uh, Arthur Pigou, yes. Yes. And then you take his work and, and try to uh, make these externalities. We can adjust for them uh, to try to make these collisions, which don't fit perfectly well in classical economics, make them fit a lot better. Is that yes. a, a fair Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really nice way to put it. 
Um, but there's another way I think that will emphasize why it's more complicated. In some sense, there's a natural way in markets that we have sellers and buyers interacting and trying to, the seller trying to get the best price, the buyer trying to get his best, his or her best price in the quality and so on. And these, these can't function without government intervention, but there, there are lots of ways in which they can function effectively without a, a lot of government intrusion. However, externalities, which are these events where you say pollute, or you have an accident, you run into someone on the road, or you have an airline collision, whatever it is, these things are ones that are intrinsically cannot be handled by private actors alone. People don't have the incentives to reduce pollution. People don't have the incentives to reduce their uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. So you need, in these areas, you need some kind of collective mechanism, collective structure to, um, to, to deal with these difficulties. Now, some of them are pretty mild, chewing gum or spitting on the street or something like that, but others are very, very grave. And so those are the ones that we really need to focus on, things like climate change or an earlier era, air pollution, water pollution, deadly pesticides, radioactivity. Those cannot be handled by individuals alone. So we get to the, uh, to the regulatory framework, uh, which includes a lot of taxes, which we'll get to in a moment. But the, uh, there was a phrase that I thought was pretty uh, striking, and it's on page 47, optimal pollution, which would strike some people as an odd term of art. But in fact, it actually makes a great deal of sense. And that's where efficient environmental regulation, where the, the marginal cost of reducing the emissions equals the marginal benefit. And that one of the big challenges we all face is policies that either do too little and co or uh, cost too much, do too little, and vice versa. And we're trying to get at least to that clutch point where the marginal utility is, is equal to the marginal cost, if not better. Yeah, that's a really important point. It's, it's a paradox. And I remember even I, as a student, stumbled over that, the idea of optimal pollution. It's maybe too fancy a word. But a better way to think, a better way or another way to think about it would be, we'll just take, let's just take climate change. Climate change is caused primarily by burning of fossil fuels. 80% of our energy is provided by fossil fuels here and around the world. All right, so doing that in a completely unrestrained way leads to unrestrained climate change with the harms that uh, we read about all the time. Okay, let's go to the other extreme of zero. And what about zero? Well, zero will basically shut everything down, such as this, this program, we shut down the printing of the books. <laughs> we would have to retreat to caves. We would lead to a cave, a cave existence again. Well, that doesn't sound too attractive either, and, and obviously not politically feasible. So somewhere between those extremes of nothing and everything, well, we could say optimal, or you could just say a reasonably sensible policy would be one we should aim for. Well-managed, I think, is a phrase that, that comes up uh, in, in your work uh, frequently. So getting to well-managed, one of the intellectual constructs that's required is thinking about the future and thinking about future generations and getting the discount rates right. But in particular, defining policy in terms of, of the impact of a current action on future generations on the planet, basically, and then discounting that back to the, to the present. And that's really, really hard to do, but it's incredibly necessary because it's easy to pollute now the impact may not be evident, uh, but for future generations, it is profoundly evident. And so uh, that, that, I think, is, is really hard for uh, a lot of policymakers to wrap their arms around. Well, so discounting, just to be clear, means that I think it's a little bit like perspective, like things that are distant look smaller. And so the future 
economically, socially, also looks smaller in our eyes in the sense of less important. And, and that's that's pretty natural because who knows what's going to happen in, let's just take 500 years from now. How much should we worry about things that are going to happen in 500 years? We're going to, we, if you look back 500 years to say, or say to the 14th century of the era of the of the Black Death. I mean, how, how far we've come from there. So part of it is the future is, is really very far and we're thinking about different societies. But we do tend to we, we discount both costs and benefits in the future. And that poses a difficulty, particularly for things like climate change, because the costs are actually in the present and the benefits are in the future. And if you discount the benefits too much, it will say, well, we shouldn't do anything now because these discounted benefits are, are worthless because they've been discounted so far. So that's that's why it's a key issue in not just climate change, it's things like treatment of radioactive waste is another example where these are around for much, much longer even than climate change. So it turns out in, in regard to discount rates, I, I work in finance, so the net present values and future matter a great deal. And, and if any analyst wants to change their, their forecast, all they do is slightly change the discount rate and voila, they get what they want. And that's, that's the great risk of that, that problem. But there are also, so I thought, some fascinating, and, and I've stumbled across this myself, accounting issues that would really help policymakers come up with maybe a, a more a better managed society in terms of uh, environmental regulation. You know, GDP just doesn't cut it, and it's the standard currency of trade in terms of, of uh, impact of policy on the economy and what should what is good. More GDP is better, and so forth. But GDP is very incomplete. It was created, I believe, in the 1930s in a rush to achieve certain goals in the 1930s that were needed in a rush. And it just doesn't deal with depreciation very well, or as you call depletion of natural assets. It wasn't designed for, for what we're using. So can you describe you know, green national accounting? I'm, I'm all in favor of this for other reasons in my, my day job that uh, we really need to revisit, particularly depreciation, how that's treated in, in investment. Yeah, um, well, I, I just wanna say, I think, I think the invention of these national accounts is one of the great inventions of the 20th century. If you, it's, it's a little bit like satellites. If you go back to 1929, the beginning of the Great Depression, and you ask, well, did, did people, did, did policymakers know what was going on? No, they had no idea. There were no measures of national income. What were they looking at? They were looking at things like boxcar loadings. Right? They were looking at things like electricity production, and they would add these things up where they would create indexes. And they really had no idea uh, until people started marching in the streets that the, that the economy was turning down so much. They could have price indexes. So actually, I, it's not a perfect index, but it's actually a pretty good measure. But it only measures what it measures. And what it measures is market activity. It doesn't try to measure non-market activity. Non-market activities are very important. For example, home production is very important. Leisure is very, very important. But the, the, from the point of view of the sort of the green economy, if you like, what's omitted is these externalities because what we do is we include the costs of preventing the externality, such as putting a scrubber on a power plant, but we omit the benefits of that in terms of better health and welfare. And so one of the issues that I've spent a fair amount of time in, actually in my academic life, is thinking of how to design better national accounts that incorporate these externalities. Uh, there's a chapter in the book which goes through some of these. Yeah. It includes CO2 accounting, sulfur accounting, subsoil assets. 
And uh, it actually comes up with a paradox that if you look at these green economies, this is very rudimentary, but it's about the best we can do. If you look, if you were to include some of these important ones, it would lower the level of our national income because what you would do is you subtract the costs of pollution. But the paradox is that over the last three or four decades, it would actually increase the growth rate of true national income. Reason is because we've actually been improving our, treat, our treatment since the 1970s. So it's, it's a kind of paradox that actually people who say environmental protection hurts growth got exactly backwards. It doesn't hurt growth, it helps growth because what it does is it reduces these harms over time. And in, in addition to an accounting, which is more clearly defined for our current circumstances, the second kind of big area of need that you identify is uh, what you call brown behavioral anomalies, which is uh, behavioral economics applied to issues of behaving better in, in regard to the, the environment. We all sort of make bad decisions that, that uh, hinder the market mechanisms from working. I encounter this in finance all the time. But uh, it, it's a healthy reminder that people need to think about uh, their impact on the world more so than they are. There's a lot of nudge, a little bit of cash Sunstein sus, uh, uh, sneaks in. I, at least I, I perceive that. So that, that was, I thought, very interesting. But the big point that you make, and it, it appears over and over again, and I, in other books on climate change and economic treatment of this, is perhaps if there's a single step that, that you advocate and others, but you advocate it so forcefully, that may have greater impact than all the others. It is getting the price of carbon right and getting it applied universally, meaning across the globe, can't be leakage. You, you use $40 a ton. You wanna to explain how that, how that uh, you know, measure uh, is and what, what a carbon tax is. Not everyone, not all of the listeners will understand a carbon tax. It sounds like a strange notion. Yeah, no, I, it is a very strange notion. I remember when I first started talking about it many years ago, people kind of looked at me as if, I was some strange animal from a different planet, which is perhaps true. This is a different planet. This is the, the planet of treating, treating externalities. So the basic insight here is that emissions of these greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide are underpriced. They're zero priced, say in the United States and in most countries. They're underpriced virtually everywhere and they're zero priced in the United States. But these are not free goods. These are not like sand in the beach or air outside our house. These are things that actually have harms, they're costly, and therefore they need to be priced to, to give the incentive for people to reduce their use or to invent low carbon technologies. That's the basic insight. They're, these are public goods which are underpriced and we need to set the price right. And the price right means the price of CO2 emissions. And the, it's currently, uh, you use $40. Interestingly, since the time you went to press in Europe, uh, the, the best price for carbon, even though, as you say, it's highly partial, is the ETS in Europe and ex an exchange. It's uh, just went up to 50 euros a ton, but uh, that's very specific to Europe. They just took some credits out of the system. I checked this morning, and that's why the price is now up, up to 50 euros a ton. But as you say, in most places in the world, it's zero, and that's just not sustainable uh, in terms of that. Yeah. What I thought was fascinating. Just, 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 I'm just break in here for a minute. Actually, the World Bank collects these and whether the right price is 40 or 50 or 100, and we could talk about that, the average price around the world is $3 a ton now. Europe, which is higher, is it at the US, which is essentially zero. It has most of the world, 80% of the world has no coverage of carbon pricing. So the actual price now, 
to a first approximation is $3 a ton at most, probably less than that if you include subsidies. Which is not going to make it, not going to not going to help reduce uh, the CO2 levels at, at that level, at that price, not even remotely close. Well, if you actually look at what's happening, we wonder why are CO2 emissions continuing to rise around the world instead of head, they're supposed to be heading south quickly, they're supposed to be heading to zero, and they're not, they're heading up slowly. And the reason is because they're still priced at zero most places around the world. Yeah. It's a big surprise. So what I think is fascinating is that compared to, say, some I'm going to call radical, everyone's views and politics are what they are, but uh, compared to some more radical approaches, your your effort, what I really appreciated was it's trying to get the prices and incentives to be properly calibrated so the market can work. And a carbon tax plays a really role. But ultimately, if you get the carbon tax right, it really helps in allowing existing market functions to, to reduce carbon. That's where you're, you keep on pushing. But you did point out that innovation, which is another part of the of the proposal, you know, carbon tax right will help innovation, but innovation faces real headwinds from a, a, can we just, a double. Can I, can I just break in? Before? I want to answer a question you half asked and I didn't answer. And that is one of the key things about carbon pricing, not just necessarily carbon taxing, but carbon pricing is how it simplifies things. You don't need to go through some regulations for every industry. You don't have to have power plant regulations and automobile regulations and housing regulations and appliance regulations, because by putting a price, it naturally sends the right signal to people who are building these things and people who are using these things. And one other really important point is, just coming back to the point of why do you want harmonized prices or taxes around the world? Because countries that are engaged in international trade don't want to find themselves in an uncompetitive position with respect to others. Europe feels quite uncompetitive in, with respect to those carbon intensive goods, steel and so on, because its carbon price is high and the rest of the world is low. If everybody has the same carbon price, then countries feel they're on the same level playing field in their international trade. Now that may not be, seem very important to Americans because we have a very, we're, very, we're not a very open economy but to Canada, Mexico, or many countries in Europe, which sell 50, 80, or 100% of GDP in trade. That's a really critical point. So and I'm going to... being able to harmonize simplifies enormously. And uh, unfortunately, it raises the issue of what you call a compact that's required for basically everyone has to agree. All the major countries, uh, carbon producing countries have to agree on this or it really doesn't work. And it requires more than some, more than voluntary commitments. It requires what you call a compact to get everyone agreeing. How is the compact different from say, you know, Paris or, or, or Kyoto at this point, or are those just voluntary assertions? Well, I think one thing to remember about these international agreements is they're basically contracts between nations. They're agreements between nations. And they can be either voluntary agreements where I, I will do this and you will do this, but there are no penalties. And that's been the way international climate treaties have been designed. Or they're ones that have incentives and penalties for people who don't meet their obligations. And those are ones such as the World Trade Organization or the structure of the European Union or many other treaties. If you don't, if you don't meet your trade obligations, there's retaliation from other countries. And we've seen that, we see that all the time. It's a constant feature of our trading system. The problem, the reason we're at a dead end with respect to international climate agree, agreements is these are treaties that are voluntary. 
There's no incentive for countries to do anything and countries aren't doing anything. There's no incentive for countries to raise their carbon prices. So most countries aren't doing that or they're doing it in a very symbolic way. And that's why we need to move from the voluntary agreement such as the Kyoto or the Paris Accord to something more like the World Trade Organization and the trade agreements or other agreements as well that are actually have teeth behind the agreements that are, that are signed. Let's let's uh, I want to circle back, if I may, and then we can finish up on whether that is is feasible or not. The one thing I just on innovation, which is a, a highlight, because we're talking now, I don't want to end the interview on a down yeah. note where where uh, we are relying upon all entities in the world to agree, which is it would be a down note. Let's talk a little bit about innovation uh, briefly, including the challenge of innovation. You, you, you highlight there are double externalities actually to make green energy financially attractive. It's doubly hard. You want to explain why that is the case, and and that may temper people's uh, expectations for their favorite solar solar uh, panel company and so forth. Well, uh, first, I think one of the most important things to remember about innovation is that innovators get only a tiny fraction of the reward. And if you look back at any of the great inventions, one of my favorites is Chester Carlson, who invented the xerography. He did not die a poor man, but if you think of the the number of hours of copying and scribing and that, that, that have now gone because we have copying machines. It's just fabulous. And he got only a tiny, tiny bit of the, uh, of, the, of the return to that. The social return to invention is much bigger than the private return. And so basically we, we underinvest in innovation. And I'd say we doubly underinvest in green innovation because not only do you have the innovation externality, it's under rewarded, but also, you have, we have carbon underpriced. So even if you were to do a low carbon invention, it wouldn't be able to sell it because the carbon price is zero. So it's hard to compete with coal. Unfortunately, the reality is it's hard to compete with coal. It's hard to compete when the price is zero. So that's actually yet another reason why we need to get the price up. But I'd like to end by saying I have a more positive outlook now, partly because of what's happened in the last year. If we look at what's happened about the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines. It's actually one of the great success stories of externalities. Because what happened was we harnessed the market by using some new tools to provide incentives to the private sector to develop these new vaccines. It was not just the intellectual property rights of patents, which are standard, but also some of these new tools like pre-purchase agreements. So we were able to and provide heightened incentives for the pharmaceutical companies and the scientists and the regulators to develop these not at record speed, and not only that, but amazingly effective vaccines. I think this is one of the great stories of innovation of recent history. But what I want to emphasize is this used some very unusual tools to bring it about. So I think there's a lesson there for climate change which is we need, to use, we need to use some enhanced tools in this area to promote green innovation. And that will be very important for two reasons. One is it will get us there more quickly because we won't be able to get to zero net emissions or even significant reduction of emissions without new technologies. And secondly, it will be much less expensive, much less controversial, much less divisive if these, if these new energy sources are less expensive. If electric cars now become not only fun to drive, but inexpensive as well, and you are basically zero carbon, 
because they're made from zero carbon fuels. That's something that people can enjoy. So it's something we can look forward to rather than pain, pain, pain. You know, economics is pain, pain, pain. This is <laughs> the, happy side, the happy side of the externality story. To, to be fair, you do end the book, page 321. We have the tools and resources. It sounded like a little bit like the $6 million man. They are there. It's a matter of getting them uh, those them aligned and uh, certainly hope that this book and believe this book will, will help in that effort. The book is The Spirit of Green, The Economics of Collisions and Contagions in a Crowded World by William Nordhaus, just out from Princeton University Press. I encourage everyone uh, to take a look at it. It's important and uh, for the sake of the planet. We'll leave it at that. Uh, Professor Nordhaus, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. And we do have the tools. We have to use them. Thank you very much. <laughs>